We're con- continuing our sermon series, uh, Advent and Isaiah. We are in Isaiah chapter 40 this morning. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. Uh, before we read God's holy and errant and fallible word, let us ask the Lord to bless the reading and hearing of his word. Let's pray together. Merciful Lord, the comforter and teacher of your people, we pray that you, through your word, would increase in your church the desires which you have given and confirm the hearts of those who hope in you by enabling them to understand the depths of your promises, that all of your adopted children may even now behold with the eyes of faith and patiently wait for the light which as yet you do not openly manifest through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Isaiah chapter 40 verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. It is written, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. At the center of this passage in Isaiah chapter 40 is this phrase in verse 5, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. The whole passage revolves around this central resounding truth, the revelation of God's glory. And really, God's glory is not just the dominant theme of these verses, but of the entire book of Isaiah Words of glory occur 37 times in the 66 chapters of this book. And if there was a prophet who knew something of God's glory, it was Isaiah, 
The glory of God was something that Isaiah had personal experience with. We're familiar with Isaiah's encounter with the Lord in Isaiah 6, where Isaiah was worshiping in the temple when unexpectedly the veil between heaven and earth was lifted. Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on his throne high and lifted up his robe, filling the temple, the heavenly beings around the throne of God, worshiping him. Isaiah was forever changed by this brief glimpse of God's glory. Glimpsing and grasping God's glory can do that to a person. And perhaps we could learn a thing or two from Isaiah about God's glory. Even we Presbyterians who often refer to God's glory, do we really have a sense of what we're talking about? Or was John Piper's assessment of the church correct when he said this? In the church, our view of God is so small instead of huge, so marginal instead of crucial, so vague instead of clear, so impotent instead of all determining, and so uninspiring instead of ravishing, that the responsibility to live to the glory of God is a thought without content. The words can come out of our mouths, but ask the average Christian to tell what they know about the glory of this God that they are going to live for, and the answer will not be long. Does that describe us? Do we really understand God's glory? Have we been changed by our view of it and our encounter with it? Or is God's glory and what it means to live for it a thought without content? Regardless of whether that describes us or not, Isaiah's prophecy here about God's glory is worthy of our attention. You see, chapter, in chapter 6, Isaiah hears the seraphim around God's throne calling out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the first few verses of Psalm 19 declare the same thing. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. You see, we learn something of God's glory in creation because God's glory as described by John Piper is the manifest beauty of his holiness. It is the going public of his holiness it is the way he puts his holiness on display for people to apprehend. So the glory of God is the holiness of God made manifest. And if we're paying attention at all, we find God's glory all around us in creation, in the, the splendor of a sunrise, in the majesty of snow-capped mountains, in the, the vastness of the ocean, in the resplendent magnificence of a starry night. In the staggering variety and beauty and complexity found in the plant and animal kingdoms. In all of these things and in many more, who God is is made manifest to us. Something of God's infinite beauty and greatness is revealed. We get a glimpse of his character. 
And by looking at the world all around us, we can see something of God's power, his creativity, his goodness. But what's being described here in Isaiah chapter 40 is not simply a display of God's glory as found in creation. It, it moves beyond a general revelation of God's glory. Here we're told of God's glory being revealed in a special way in his coming. And this is no small or common thing. As wonderful as a sunrise is, there is infinitely more splendor in what Isaiah is describing. And we need to understand just how momentous this prophecy is, what it is foretelling. And to get at it, I want us to examine just a few aspects of this passage. We're not going to look at everything, but first, we need to understand the context into which Isaiah proclaims the coming of God's glory. Second, we need to understand the comfort that Isaiah here declares will result from the coming of God's glory. And third, we need to see the importance of the clearing the way for the coming of God's glory. So context, comfort, clearing the way. You can remember those three. So first, we need to understand the context into which Isaiah proclaims the coming of God's glory. And here's what I mean by that. This passage begins, comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. The revealing of God's glory in his coming is actually the source of this word of consolation that begins this passage. But to really understand the significance of this consolation, we need to first have an understanding of the perspective from which this prophecy comes. You see, the context of these words of comfort isn't in the immediate time in which Isaiah lived. Rather, Isaiah speaks here to a much more distant day, one in which Israel would find herself in exile. As Pastor John explained last Sunday, Isaiah had prophesied during a time when both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah were under the threat of the Assyrian Empire. And Pastor John gave a, a very good overview of the historical context of Isaiah's ministry, so I'm not going to get into those details. If you weren't here, didn't hear the sermon, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to it. Anyhow, despite Isaiah and several other prophets' warnings, the Assyrians would ultimately defeat the northern kingdom of Israel around 722 B.C. This was during Isaiah's life in ministry. It was his immediate context. But starting in chapter 40, Isaiah is no longer speaking into his particular context. Rather, he's speaking into a future context. He tells of what would play out many years later, more specifically, to the kingdom of Judah being conquered and carried away into exile by the Babylonian empire which would overtake the Assyrian Empire as the dominant military and political power of the day. If we were to go back into chapter 39, we would see this context being set up with Isaiah prophesying to Hezekiah, who was the king of Judah toward the end of Isaiah's ministry. This is what Isaiah declares to him. Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house... 
and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. This is a word of doom to Hezekiah and to all of Judah with him. Judgment was coming. There would be defeat, captivity, and exile. And sure enough, Isaiah's prophecy would come to pass about a hundred or so years after his death with the crushing defeat of Judah and the destruction of Jerusalem, including the temple around 586 B.C. And so what we find in chapter 40 is a message to those who would find themselves taken captive by the Babylonians and hauled off into exile where they would remain for decades until the Babylonians themselves were defeated by the Persians. And then under the Persian king, Cyrus the Great, the people of God would finally be allowed to return to Israel. Now, as you can imagine, this time in Babylon would be a very dark time for God's people. It was a time in which many of God's people undoubtedly questioned God in their relationship with him. Had God simply abandoned them? Was he against them? Had their sin separated them from God forever? Had their rebellion against God nullified his promises to them? Or maybe God wasn't really who they thought he was. He was maybe not as powerful as they thought. Maybe he had been defeated by the gods of Babylon. And these are some of the questions that might have been swirling around in their minds during these years in exile. It isn't difficult to see how demoralized God's people would have been during this time. And and we get a sense of this in Psalm 137, which begins, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. So understanding this, imagine how these opening words would have sounded in their ears and to their hearts, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Immediately after foretelling their doom in chapter 39, Isaiah is foretelling their consolation in chapter 40. And so now we need that we understand the context. Let's look at this promised comfort. Notice how God still identifies with them in this first verse. He refers to them as my people and to himself as your God. Not only had God not abandoned them, but he would deliver them. This is a promise that would be a light in their darkness and would give them hope to endure this exile. The prophecy found here reassures a future generation of God's people that a day was coming when their exile would be over. The discipline of the Lord would come to an end. The Lord would not hold their sins against them forever. You see, the promised end of their exile wasn't a result of Israel having paid for their own sins, as it were. They would indeed suffer for their sins. God would allow them to experience the result of their rebellion as a means of discipline. But what is being communicated here is the graciousness of the Lord to forgive their iniquity and to restore them. This is the message of verse Two, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her 
iniquity is pardoned. Do you see? The comfort being offered is rooted in the knowledge that God's deepest intention toward his people isn't anger and wrath. It is comfort, overflowing comfort, even in the midst of their disobedience. As commentator Raymond Ortland Jr. states, see in God not a frown but a smile, not distance but nearness. And so even as a context into which this prophecy comes is of Israel's total failure. And the result of that failure is the exile. But this is, as one commentator puts it, the occasion of God's renewing comfort. God's glory would be revealed in his coming and delivering his people from their own sin and stupidity. We can see then the end of the exile being the primary fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy because this message was for those who would need this message of hope in exile. The interesting thing was, though, that the nation of Israel, as it is known in Scripture, would never really be reestablished as a fully self-governed, independent people after the Babylonian exile, right up until the time of Jesus. The Babylonians, as I've already mentioned, would eventually be conquered by the Persians, who would be conquered by Alexander the Great. And as we know, the Roman Empire would then rise to be the, the dominant world power, which is where we find things in the first century. All of these empires would continue to rule over Israel. And by the way, these are the four kingdoms that the prophet Daniel was given visions of, visions which would ultimately point to the coming of God in his kingdom. It shouldn't be lost on us then the importance of the familiar words from chapter 2 of Luke's gospel. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. You see, Luke is setting the scene in a way that reminds us that even as Israel has come out of the Babylonian exile, she is still under another worldly authority. She isn't finally and fully free. Now, Luke is telling us that the initial fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy wasn't its ultimate fulfillment. This wasn't just about being freed from worldly oppressors, the land of Israel being restored. By the way, this is also why in Luke's gospel we have those who are still awaiting the consolation of Israel, even hundreds of years after Isaiah's ministry in the Babylonian exile. They're still awaiting Isaiah's prophecy to be fulfilled. Luke 2 presents us with Simeon and Anna at the temple who were both waiting for the redemption promised in Isaiah in the coming of God. Simeon is described by Luke in this way. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ before he had seen the Messiah. Simeon knew that Isaiah's prophecy was more than a return home from exile. It was a coming Messiah who would bring true salvation. And Simeon and Anna found this Messiah in a baby. 
in the baby Jesus. It was in Jesus that God had truly come and his glory was truly revealed. This is exactly what the apostle John says in the first chapter of his gospel. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Dearly beloved, this is what we celebrate at Christmas. We celebrate the glory of the Lord being revealed in and through Jesus Christ in whom we see the very face of God. God in all of his glory would take on human flesh and come down to our level that we might see him and know him and that he might deliver us. Jesus was the Messiah foretold by Isaiah. Jesus was the one who would fulfill this promise to finally and fully release God's people from their true oppression, not from Rome or any other world power, but from the oppression of sin and death. Jesus would come to deal with the iniquity of God's people. This is really what Isaiah's prophecy is speaking to, God's people being freed from spiritual oppression and reconciled back to him. And this is really what is at the heart of the matter. Our true need is to have our sins dealt with. And this is precisely why Jesus has come. Not just that we might see God, but that we might see and know God's love and righteousness and justice in the way in which he deals with our sin and reconciles us to himself. The amazing truth is that God has tied up his glory with our consolation, the forgiveness of our sins. And the breathtaking truth is that God has done this not by just telling us that our sins are forgiven, but in the suffering and death of his own son, Jesus Christ, who offered up his life as an atoning sacrifice. Jesus has come to die that we might live. That is why he was born in Bethlehem. This is what Hebrews 2 verses 14 and 15 tell us. Listen to this. This is God's word. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. In other words, he became fully human. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Isaiah 40 isn't just about the Babylonian exile. It's about the exile caused by our sin and rebellion against God. But this is the extent that God in his love is willing to go for the sake of our redemption and reconciliation. Is there a greater consolation that we could be offered? If we aren't in awe of the revelation of God's glory in Jesus Christ, not only in God himself taking on human flesh to dwell among us, but also in God taking on human flesh that he might live a righteous life on our behalf and die a sinner's death on our behalf as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins, then brothers and sisters, we simply don't get it. 
This is staggering what God has done for us. And certainly, this is probably not what we would expect for how God would come and reveal his glory. As Raymond Ortland Jr. states, our ideas of God's glory have to adjust to his beautiful willingness to humble himself all the way to a wretched death for us. The Apostle Paul taught us that in this arrogant world, only a weak and foolish gospel can reveal the Lord of glory. That's 1 Corinthians 2, 8. The cross of glory shames all human pride. And this gets us to the third aspect of this passage that we need to examine if we are to acknowledge just how momentous God's glory being revealed in his coming really is. So thirdly, we need to understand the importance of clearing the way for the coming glory of God. We don't want to miss the comfort that God is offering. We, we want to understand the necessary preparation. So look at verses 3 and 4. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. If the king of glory was coming, then the way needed to be made clear. A road needed to be built. Hills and valleys needed to be leveled out. But this isn't talking about a physical reality, is it? It isn't talking about a way being built to get from Babylon to Jerusalem. This isn't about changing physical topography. The way back to Jerusalem from Babylon didn't go through a desert, but around it. And this isn't referencing the exiles returning home anyhow. It's referring to the coming of God into their midst. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. This is what Isaiah says. It's a highway for God to come. So these verses aren't to be read literally, but figuratively. So what do they mean? Well, they are first to be understood as the reality that God will accomplish his purposes. God's promises are sure. Nothing will stop him. God will make a way to come and to come swiftly when he determines to act. And there will be a lifting up and lowering, a leveling and a smoothing. And in the initial fulfillment, this meant that the enemies of God and of God's people would be flattened. If God wanted his people to return home, then the Babylonians weren't going to stop this from happening, despite how powerful they might seem. God would raise up another nation to flatten them. But the sins of God's people wouldn't stop him either. God would act on the behalf of his people, working in them what was required for their salvation. So secondly, this is about, as one commentator puts it, the upheaval of repentance, the disruptive advance of salvation. You see, the preparation needed in the hearts of the people that God has elected to save is repentance. If people were to receive their coming king, then the proud would need to be humbled. Their life of dependence on the things of this world would need to be disrupted and turned upside down. The trust in their own power, in their own righteousness, their satisfaction in worldly pleasure. These things needed to be 
turned away from. This is what's necessary for the reception of the kingdom of Christ. And we see this very work being done in advance of Jesus' ministry in the ministry of John the Baptist. He proclaimed the kingdom of God was at hand and he encouraged repentance. And repentance itself is an act of faith on the part of the people who had not yet seen the king, but who dared to believe he was coming. And this is still true today. You see, even as the first advent of Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, it did not end there. We are still awaiting the fullness of God's glory to be revealed. Scripture declares that the day is coming when Jesus will return again and all flesh shall see it together, as the prophet Isaiah foretells in verse 5. When Jesus comes as a baby... The glory of God is revealed in a remarkable way, but it was only the dawning of God's glory. It was a gentle sunrise, as it were. But God's glory was still veiled to a degree. But a day is coming when the sun of righteousness will reach high noon, and God's glory will come in power and will be finally and fully revealed, and no one on that day will miss it. The New Testament in many places speaks to this truth. The Apostle Paul says in Titus chapter 2, For the grace of God has appeared, that is speaking to the first advent of Jesus Christ, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope. And what is that hope? the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, that is the second advent, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The day that Jesus has set as judge will come. And he will come to judge the living and dead in power and glory. Jesus himself speaks to the second advent in Matthew 24, verses 29 and 30. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Dearly beloved, we don't want to just receive the comfort God is offering in the forgiveness of sins by humbling ourselves before him, repenting of our sins and placing our faith in him. We also want to be prepared for the coming again of Christ with power and great glory. We don't want to be among those who are taken unaware by the coming of Christ like a thief in the night. Of those, the apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, while people are saying there is peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. 
We want to be among those whose lamps are burning, who are awake and ready, who are waiting in eager expectation, ready for God's glory to be revealed finally and fully, ready to share in his glory. That's the promise of the gospel to us. So we must be prepared for this coming. We must be prepared by placing faith in our God in a way that moves us out of the paralysis of hopelessness and discouragement, that believes that this world is all there is and that our God will not act. And this means that we must, in this present darkness and despair, place hope in the God who we cannot see, even when it seems as though either God has abandoned us or that there are more powerful forces at work in the world. We must be prepared by not only being too contented with the world, acting as though this world is all there is. Sometimes, like Hezekiah was doing, we, we trust in the very things that end up destroying us. He just thought he could find security by entering into agreements with the world powers. And to Isaiah's prophecy of the coming destruction of Judah in chapter 39 of Isaiah, Hezekiah essentially shrugged and responded, okay. Scripture tells us, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. And sometimes that is our attitude. We just think that God's coming judgment really is for another time, not for our time. We can just eat and drink and be merry. We can make nice with the world and find our security and our comfort and our joy here Isaiah 40 tells us that the glory of the Lord is coming, though, and that we need to be finding our consolation there. The time for repentance and faith is now. So, dearly beloved, if you haven't repented of your sins and placed faith in Jesus Christ, I urge you not to delay. I pray that we would even go beyond that. This passage ends with this call. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. The image here is one of a king's subjects who are aware of his approach, going up onto the hillsides of all the nearby villages to announce to as many as can hear that the king is coming. This is the cry to go tell it on the mountain. God has come in Jesus Christ and God is coming again, both as a conquering king who will bring judgment on all who rebel against him, putting all of his enemies under his feet, and also as a shepherd who will gently gather all of his sheep together into his arms. Dearly beloved, this is a message that needs to be shouted from the mountaintops. Repent and believe place faith in the one who has come and revealed God and his glory to us not only his hatred against sin but also his great love and compassion to all who humble themselves before him and place faith in his all-sufficient atoning work on the cross what we celebrate at Christmas is not simply for ourselves God's mercy isn't just for us it is good news of great joy for all the world and how wonderful is it that God invites us to share in his glory in this way. Dearly beloved, let us go out and proclaim this good news of great joy. To God be the glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we...
Thank you that you have humbled yourself, leaving the glory of heaven, leaving your throne to come and become a servant among us. Lord, we thank you that Jesus has taken on flesh and the dawn of your glory has risen in him. Lord, that we have behold your face in him, that we have seen your glory. Lord, but we also thank you for his suffering and death that has reconciled us back to you, has redeemed us from our sins. Lord, help us to place faith in him. Help us to believe that he has come and is coming again. Help us to live as those prepared for that coming. And help us announce the good news of great joy to the world. For we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe in using the Nicene Creed, which explicitly tells us of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. Christian, in whom do you believe? We believe. Shall I?